welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecum Sequatum territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequatum Ulu. And today's text, Mafi, is set in South Africa, and the indigenous population of South Africa are the dispossessed Khoisan people. Joe, mm-hmm. this was different. This is different. I mean, it's in the same wheelhouse. And yet, I realized as we were making our way through this, we've never done a war book or film. No, we haven't. And so I don't think it's a first choice genre for either of us. Mm -mm. But it is clearly YA. Well, I would say this is actually more NA, right? This is like... A little, yeah. He's 19 years old. Mm -hmm. And he's just left school. And I was reading about sort of the political context. So as we said, the book is set in South Africa. There was mandatory military service during the apartheid reign. And this period in particular, in the early 80s, South Africa was fighting like a proxy war against Mm -hmm. Angola at the southern border, which was really more about like, fighting communism, quote unquote, and uh, maintaining apartheid than anything else. Mm -hmm. And so the cultural connotations the sort of context of this story, the book is not just a war story. It's also right. very much a strongly coming of age story. Oh, yeah. Um, and I liked it, but it was definitely way out of my comfort zone. Hmm. So, Brenna, who wrote this book and what is it about? Okay, so Andre Carl Vandermeer. I'm sure it's I'm pronouncing very it wrong, long too. last name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Vandermeer or Merway, perhaps. And this is. Vandermeerway's first book. He's a South African novelist. Um, it's autobiographical, and it's based mm-hmm. on the diaries that he kept when he was doing his compulsory military service. So I think that lends an air of, I don't know, like it feels really real. Everything in this book feels extremely visceral and extremely real, with the yes. exception of the dialogue, as we'll talk about in a little bit. Oh, boy. Although we should acknowledge that if you read the kind of postscript acknowledgments, this is based on some real experiences that he encountered, but are not actually based on real people and their experiences are not real. So this is semi-autobiographical, semi-real. Yeah, I also suspect, like, when did homosexuality actually become decriminalized in South Africa? Because I suspect that mm. that endnote also has some protective qualities to it. Right. Yeah, it definitely has an air of names have been changed to protect the innocent. Okay, so our protagonist, Nick, is honestly one of the most heartbreaking protagonists I think we've had, Joe. He's... A heartbreaker because his family sucks, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a lot. His dad is super abusive. His family is really obsessed with the idea that, like, I don't know, it's a particular definition of masculinity that obviously has no room for homosexuality in it. And that's mm-hmm. sort of the cultural milieu that Nick grows up in. Nick knows he's gay, um, but he lives in a society where that is not just illegal, it's socially unacceptable. And he's really quite scarred by experiences, including like seeing a teacher get fired for being gay or being suspected of being gay, seeing people get beat up. And so 
he goes into the military knowing he's different, knowing he has no choice, he has to go through with this, and without any kind of a safe place to go back to. Like, mm-hmm. he doesn't long to go back to his family when he's on leave. He's really kind of dispossessed in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, he has a good relationship with his mom, but his relationship with his younger sister is strained because he has misplaced anger at her for allowing his older brother to get hit by a car and die. And then, yeah, as you said, his dad is a firm POS. And his sister sides with his dad. Like, it's not just misplaced anger that damages their relationship. It's the fact that his sister will literally tell their dad things so that he beats him up like Mm -hmm. she ain't a good person either (laughs) yeah and we're not talking like his dad mouse off to him or locks him in a closet or or i was gonna say socially acceptable ways of abusing (laughs) your child no like his dad fully takes off the belt Mm -hmm. and beats the crap out of him yeah at one point he's beating nick so severely that his mother says why don't you just kill him and get it over with Mm-hmm. Like, that's the level of abuse we're talking about here. And the yep. extended family is no better. Every time no. he has an interaction with, like, an uncle or a cousin, it's like it, this this sort of really sick form of masculinity is the family standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked the revelation later in the book because there's, like, flashbacks interspersed throughout the entirety of the book. So it's not linear at all. Mm -hmm. But there's one point where we learn that his uncle, who is horrendous and makes the children wrestle, Mm -hmm. uh, is not only sexually abusing the boys, but also the girls. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of sort of childhood trauma at the root of everything that happens in this book. Yeah, content warning for... All of that, as well as multiple animals getting killed. Yeah, as well as multiple acts of and reference to death by suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, honestly, this is just a tough freaking book. It's a really tough book. Also, like, genocidal actions in war, including but not limited to decapitations and rapes. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. The book is a lot. And I actually found that... The structure that Vandermeer uses where we move back and forth between the present and the past is really important because both the present and the past are extremely intense and spending long stretches of time in either space is too much. Mm. But moving back and forth between them provides like a valve, even though it's, it's not like Nick is, you know, remembering something particularly good. Usually it does take us out of the immediate danger, Mm -hmm. which is really helpful structurally. Yeah, yeah. Because the reality is that the story is taking place over the two years that he's under compulsory conscription. The first year is basic boot camp, and there's a bunch of terrible things that happen. But, you know, Nick does make a couple of friends. So Mm -hmm. he befriends Malcolm, who will eventually become his lifelong best friend. He has a crush on Ethan, who he will eventually end up dating, but Mm. only after a kind of long, arduous process Mm. where the two realize they had a mutual attraction and could have acted on it. Mm -hmm. And then he also has a gay friend that is in love with him, but Nick doesn't really feel that way about him. And when this friend is on the verge of being discovered and sent to a horrendous place called Ward 22, which is basically where they send anyone who is considered quote-unquote deviant, uh, this character Dylan dies by suicide. Yes, in quite a graphic and horrific scene involving a firearm. Also, Joe, I went down a whole rabbit hole about Ward 22, which is a Mm -hmm. real place. Yep. 
sure and is. probably the most disturbing thing I learned. Well, no, that's not true. But one of the very disturbing components of it is that the doctor in heavy quotation marks who was in charge of Ward 22. Joe, do you know what happened to him after apartheid? Um, I'm going to guess nothing bad. He moved to Canada. Oh, fantastic. He became licensed as a psychiatrist. He got a job at the University of Calgary. Hmm. And then in 2010, he was accused of sexually interfering with his patients. Well, of course. He served, I think, a five-year jail term. But oh, his come. wife <laughs> tried to bribe the jury to get him off. Nice. Yeah, oh, horrible I person. love a woman who stands by her man. Love a little bit of a CanCon connection when I was like, I was reading that and I literally went, what the hell? It was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't have a heritage moment about that, do we? <laughs> no, we don't. Anyway, I've sort of fluffed this plot summary, but basically he goes, as Joe says, he goes to boot camp and he goes through these experiences. That scene with Dylan is probably the most important, but we have all of these sort of culminating moments that lead to his direct commander hating him. We're mm -hmm. pretty sure his direct commander is trying to kill Nick for the duration of the time that they are in the borderlands, which is when they mm -hmm. go on their first sort of um, their first assignment, I guess. Yeah. And that's not an exaggeration. He's literally putting him in places where he is more likely to be killed. Intentionally because he hates him because he's pretty sure he's gay. Yes, correct. When he finally does return, this commander is so mad that he doesn't successfully kill him that he basically ensures that he gets a demotion of rank. Well, not a demotion, but he doesn't get he doesn't become an officer. He becomes a non-commissioned officer instead, which mm -hmm. continues to put him in harm's way. I mean, yeah. everybody, with the exception of Dylan, everybody makes it through. And I actually think that's a really important aspect of the book. Like I was holding mm -hmm. my breath for Malcolm to get killed. I was oh, sure 100%. when they got yep. sent to the border, Malcolm was getting killed. And I think that there is, for all the bleakness and darkness and difficulty in this book, mm -hmm. there is the sense that Nick and Malcolm and Ethan triumph. They triumph not just over this compulsory national service thing, but they triumph over the attitude of people like the commander. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's not joy. <laughs> it's no. not victory. It's not like a happy ending by any stretch of the imagination because our final scene is an explanation of Dylan's original trauma that is just deeply, deeply upsetting. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it is a story of survival. I think it's really importantly a story of survival for those three characters who I spent no time at all with the exception of Nick, because he's writing it, right. I did not think any of the other guys were going to come through okay. And, um, well, okay, yeah. okay is generous, but you know what I mean? <laughs> like, the fact that Malcolm survives, I feel like that's really, really important. Well, it feels like the whole story is tinged with trauma and tragedy, right? Like, you're just waiting for the hammer to drop, the four to fall out on any of these characters, except, yes, as we know, Nick, because he's writing it from a perspective where he's looking into the past, and yet, it's interesting, you say survival, and in my mind, I was thinking perseverance. And I don't mm -hmm. know that they're not exactly synonymous, but they're not the same either. Mm -hmm. Because so much of this just feels like Nick willing himself not to fail yeah. in order to live up to the expectations of what people consider a mafi. And mafi is an African slur that really embodies a number of different things. So obviously, it's the F slur, but it can also mean a bunch of 
other things. Like basically it can mean non-masculine man. Yeah, I was going to say sissy. It has strong like yes. that kind of – it's a particular kind of effeminacy that is just – like the, the disdain for mm-hmm. – like there's deep-seated misogyny here, right? Like it's oh, not yes. – exclusively although it is an importantly deeply like homophobic queerphobic mm-hmm. anti-gay and violently so but it's also like the sense that to be woman-like is the mm-hmm. absolute worst thing that any person can be and the way in which women are framed like there's Yes, Nick has a good relationship with his mother, but she can't save him. She can't do Mm -mm. anything to protect him. She can't ever intervene in any kind of meaningful way. She basically manages to do it once to protect a dog, which does Mm -hmm. not end well either. No. And and it's sort of fascinating to me just how sick this society is. You know, when we first started reading it, I felt really uncomfortable because I was like, oh, we're reading about apartheid from the perspective of the white people. Yes. Ooh. <laughs> um, well, and then you start to realize that there's so much otherness yes. in, I think, particularly South Africa, right? Like, that's the sort of context that we're reading this all in. But yeah, yeah, as you were saying, this is so deeply misogynistic. I was like, yeah, and it's also deeply racist. Yes. Like, it truly is, unless you are a heterosexual white man. And I know that that sounds like a very politically correct woke thing to say in the year of our Lord 2023. But the reality is, is that if you were not a straight white man in South Africa at this point, you were othered and you were less than. Well, and the othering is so violent, right? Like, Mm -hmm. because it's all about this assertion of a particular kind of masculinity as superior. But like unrealistic masculinity. The, The trials that he has put through. And I'm, you know, I'm not a supporter of the military in any way. I just don't believe in it. I think it's a complete fallacy that we tell ourselves that we need to be protected. Mm -hmm. And I hate movies and books like this because it goes against everything I stand for. Like the humiliation, the indoctrination, all of the BS that Mm -hmm. Nick has to undergo in this. It just, it makes my skin boil because I, I don't agree with it. And it all feels like it's a construction, like a societally constructed thing that men have told themselves. Like, if you don't live up to these ridiculous standards that, for what, then you are not man enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's so, so disturbed and disturbing. You know, listeners will know that the place I falter most is like stuff with kids. <laughs> Cruel uh, stuff. Bullying stuff. And animal stuff. It's like this book has a lot check, of things check, in it. Check, 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 check. <laughs> and it's all in the service of this just absolutely sick notion of what it is to be a man. And mm-hmm. the reason why the military becomes such a like a toxic cesspool for this is because the men who survive this mm-hmm. treatment, they want to dish it out to somebody else, right? Like that's all they yeah. want to do is have the upper hand. And it's just, oh, it's so profoundly upsetting to read. Yeah. I, and in order to survive, you have to conform to these behaviors. Or in Nick's case, you have to fake it until you yeah. make it. And then you get out of there as soon as you humanly can. And you hope that you don't end up like Malcolm, where your hand gets exploded on a landmine and you maybe lose it, but miraculously manage to get it saved. Or um, Ethan, who barely gets around Ward 22. Or Dylan, who does not survive at all. Well, and I think, you know, Dylan's story is so upsetting because when we meet Dylan's parents afterwards, well, not his mom, who is 
drunk. Just very far gone by the time we yes. get to meet her. Um, but, you know, his father, he's it's like... hard, isn't it? Where you're just like, oh, Dylan didn't think he would be accepted by his dad because his dad is this traditionally masculine man. Yeah. And then you realize he's actually not. And he would have gladly accepted his son. He gladly accepts Nick as somebody but, that his son loved. But then my question is, would he have accepted Dylan... Well, or did Dylan have to die to teach him that lesson? Ooh, you're coming in with the hard questions, <laughs> aren't you? Yes, I do think it's the latter. And that's the thing. It's one of those things where it's like, is the tragedy that Dylan died before he could find out that his father was a better man than he thought he was? Or mm. is the tragedy that it took Dylan's death to make his father into that better man? I don't I don't have yep. an answer for that well, question. Well, and it runs parallel to Nick's own journey with his dad. Yeah. And we know the answer in that yep. case. Oh, I his father is one of my most loathed characters we have encountered on this show. I just... Mm -hmm. As we come up on 250 episodes. I'm telling you, we've had some bad dads, but this guy Ooh. might be the president of the bad dad club. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. You know, we both talked about how this is a hard read. There's a lot of really difficult, challenging stuff in here. Were there any moments of levity or things that mm. brought you any kind of joy? Oh, good question. I think when Ethan and Nick get together at the mm -hmm. end of the book, there are moments of true joy there. They are both so badly scarred. And Vandermeer is very careful to make sure that we never lose track of the fact that these are traumatized boys. <laughs> like mm -hmm. their military service is going to leave scars. Oh, they yeah. will they will live and that's somewhat miraculous, but they are not unscathed. So I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. um but but the scenes of them together are really quite beautiful i also love the scene where he and malcolm sort of go to the gay bar for the first time yeah, for yeah. nick and there's this sense of like relief and then of course we find out what horrible things happen at the gay bar later mm. everything is undercut <laughs> right by the tragedy yeah. of the circumstance that these boys are in but the friendships between particularly between nick and malcolm that friendship is is beautiful it's truly beautiful and yeah. you know there's there are shortcomings in this book. You can tell it's a first book. The dialogue in particular is quite oh, stilted. Boy. And I, as I said to Joe, I don't really understand how because Vandermeer is a journalist. Like an ear for dialogue is sort of the thing I would expect, but it's frustrating because the introspection and the reflection and the interior life of so Nick are so written. beautiful, yeah. so beautiful. And then you get into these scenes where they're. The dialogue absolutely clunkers. Very, very, very clunky dialogue. Difficult to read at times and really draws you out of mm -hmm. the burgeoning relationships between the characters at times. Yeah. I, I'm wondering, is there any possibility that this is a deliberate choice? Like, in their own minds, they're very eloquent and reflective and almost poetic. Like, there's passages mm. of poetry that Nick actually writes in the journal. Do you think that this is kind of a... We're actually unable to say the things that we live in our heads out loud. So it just becomes very stilted, very clunky dialogue. Yeah, it's sort of, um, you're going to laugh at me, but there's a John Green effect, right? Oh my goodness. <laughs> How dare you? But that idea of like really smart kids who don't sound like kids anymore because they're so focused on like this way of articulating their thoughts that they believe has some kind of value. I don't know if that's what's happening. I don't know that I would go this far, but I do think that there has to be something intentional about the dialogue because the rest of the book is so beautiful. 
It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Because even if he, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it feels so bad that you almost want to believe that it is intentional because otherwise it seems like someone should have caught it or it should have been better. Yeah, I agree. I don't have an answer, but I agree. Okay, okay. Um, shall we transition over to the film? Let's please. The most important single factor in the South African army, the soldier. All our efforts are directed at equipping him physically and otherwise for the defense of our country. Thank you all for being with us to send off my firstborn to do his military service. Jeff! He'll be okay, Sam. Show them what you're made of. Okay, so the film Mafi comes out in 2019. It is directed by Oliver Hermanis, and it is from a script by Hermanis as well as Jack Seide. It stars Kai-Luke Bromer as Nicholas, as well as Matt Ashwell in a very key flashback to his youth. We also have Ryan DeVilliers as Dylan, Matthew Vey as Sax, and Hilton Pelzer as Sergeant Brand. And one of the key distinctions in the film is that it is more linear, so we don't often get a ton of flashbacks. It sort of opens as he's on his way to conscription, and it will follow him through his basic boot camp off to the borders and so on, with the exception of, as I mentioned, that big flashback that's very significant. And the other big thing that I (laughs) completely forgot, because I watched the film first and then read the book and then watched the film again... Uh, we don't have an Ethan character in this. Or a Malcolm character. Right. Everybody is collapsed into Dylan. Yes. So most of them get collapsed into Dylan, who does not die. And then we also have Sax, who is, I think, kind of the Malcolm proxy, but then he does die at the border. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Like, I get why the changes are made that have mm-hmm. been made. I think that, obviously, this would be a sprawling complicated book to adapt Mm -hmm. focusing exclusively on the military story striking back the flashbacks and narrowing the focus to a single love interest i think Mm -hmm. all makes sense like i'm not really critiquing those choices the impact of it in addition to probably being a better film like i'm recognizing the necessity of it but the impact is that we are given fewer examples of what queerness under apartheid looked like and felt like, Mm -hmm. which I think was my only disappointment in the scaling back of the number of characters. Right. Because in many ways, like Malcolm is this sort of model of outness and proudness, not Mm -hmm. what we would see as being out and proud in a more open society. But for the context, Malcolm owns his identity in a way that is really eye-opening for Mm -hmm. Nick 
And then the level of both self-loathing and, and personal trauma that Dylan of the book is living with that leads to the choice that he makes versus someone like Ethan who actually figures out sort of an escape route, right? Like mm -hmm. going into the medical core and not having to deal with nearly so much of the bullshit, like yep. hyper-masculinity stuff. We have all these different sort of models of what it is to be othered, but like what that could look like. Mm -hmm. So as a result, queerness in the film is really sort of it's drilled down into two characters, two. right? Yeah, you're either pass, which is ultimately what how Nick survives, or mm -hmm. you end up on Ward 22. Like, those are your two choices. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I felt like I had a really visceral response to the film the first time I watched it. I found it really gorgeous and evocative. What happens to our Dylan character, who is shades of Dylan, shades of Ethan, shades of Malcolm in, in different respects. What happens to Dylan in the film really saddened me. And I felt, mm. you know, I felt very impacted when he goes to War 22, particularly the moments where we see him just lying doped up on the bed it's and horrible. he is so completely out of it. Like it's really powerful. And then you go back and you read the book and you see how much of this they have actually cut out in order to streamline the film. And you're right. I do think we lose a lot by not having it. And I do think it's probably still the right decision because... Yeah. In order to have a film, you need to have a certain level of necessity. Like, you can't tell all the stories. The difference for me, as much as I liked the stories and the diversity in the book, I came to appreciate the visual storytelling of the film. I think that Hermanus is really, really good at getting rid of a lot of the dialogue that weighs mm. the book down. So the film ends up almost being... I hesitate to say a travelogue because I do not want to go and live in this world, but I found that it was really easy to get swept away in mm -hmm. the visual language of the film for better and worse. So like the hard scenes are really hard and the beauty is really beautiful. It is really well done. I was so scared going into the film, Joe, that it was going to be a voiceover fest. Oh, gosh, can you imagine? Because I couldn't imagine how they were going to realize the book without that. I mean, the book mm -hmm. lives inside Nick's head. Oh, 100%. Yeah. They do it by not having it live inside Nick's head. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I mean, that's ultimately the solution. <laughs> by striking out most of the flashback. And it's not really about... Um, it's not nearly so much, I should say, about Nick's interior life as it is mm -hmm. about sort of his his trying to fit himself into this world and, and pass so that he can right. survive. Um, so I was pleased. Like, I thought that the way they dealt with that aspect of things, it's a shockingly quiet movie mm -hmm. often. Yeah. Because Nick is an observer in the film, much more so than in yes. the books. And so we watch Nick watching and trying to make sense of the world. And it's a very strong performance from this yeah. actor. So much of it is inferred through his facial expressions and his body language and the way he's sort of witnessing all of this trauma around him. Mm -hmm. I'm so happy that you said that because on a first watch, I actually, I think I may have even described this character as bland. I was like, he's hot, but he doesn't really have a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And the second time around, I really appreciated how introspective and observant Brummer's performance is. Because you're right, Nick, in a way is so closed off to us because you can see the hard shell he's had to put up in order to survive this ordeal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It 
reminded me a little bit of a film that I watched last year, which deals with very, very similar issues called The Inspection. It's by Elegance Bretin, and uh, it has a great performance by Gabrielle Union, who we talked about in Bring It On, mm. but it's uh, very much the same idea where a boy who is gay goes into the military. In this case, it's a contemporary film, so it's actually because he's poor, like he's unhoused because his mother has kicked him out because of his queerness. Mm. And the film is very similar to the hardships that Nick undergoes in Mafia, where it's about that indoctrination, the traditionalism basically being abused by other boys as well as superiors and whether or not you can persevere in order to prove to yourself that you are capable of coming out the other side. And they're both incredibly hard, hard films, but it's interesting how much these films rely on these quiet central figures to ground the narrative. And it's like, almost by saying less, mm. you want more for them because you're just like, you're you're so gentle. I yeah. don't want you to be broken by this. Yeah, and you can watch the breaking happening in real time, so to speak, because of that observer status, because they're just sort of ever present. And there's all this trauma happening around them. I mean, particularly mm -hmm. in the film when Nick gets to the border, it's so much of it is just watching just horror after horror take yep. place. Yeah, it's it's incredibly powerful. I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about the film, and I don't think I like it as much as the book. <laughs> it's not the kind of film that you're just going to casually throw on, right? Like, no. I'm, you're happy you watched it, but also, do you ever want to revisit this world? <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, part of what the film refuses to give you that the book very carefully has to include because you're spending 350 pages in this world are these release valves of the moving back and forth in time we really mm -hmm. have one flashback it's a flashback where nick is caught in a change room watching a, a man shower watching mm -hmm. a boy shower really and he's dragged out publicly and it's oh boy. awful it's a awful awful scene and his father's reaction is awful and all of it is really difficult to watch yeah but that's really the only time we flash back mm -hmm. in the same kind of way, whereas the book is constantly moving us between the two time periods. Yes. As a result, the film is much more intense than the book because you never yeah. get There's to no breathe. Mm -mm, there's no reprieve at all. And I mean, that one flashback is not exactly a like, whew, you no. know. <laughs> <laughs> we should note that in interviews, Hermanus indicated that this is actually in semi-autobiographical experience from his own childhood oh, wow. he didn't go into elaborate detail in the pieces that i saw but this is clearly his addition to the story and i wanted to note technically part of the reason that this stands out from the rest of the film is obviously not just because it's a flashback and it's completely different characters apart from his parents but this is filmed in a single long take for the mm. most part so the camera never edits which means we don't Again, it's a different kind of no reprieve. We're just caught in this moment and there's no escaping from it because there isn't even an edit to give us uh, that kind of distance from it. And I find it's such a strong, smart filmmaking choice. I, I just had to stand up and applaud. The other thing that's really different about it visually from the rest of the film is the rest of the film is gray. Yes. Like almost entirely gray. Not, mm -hmm. not like overdone, but just 
their uniforms and the climate and the fact mm-hmm. that a lot of it takes place at night. It looks like it's been desaturated. Like all the life has been taken out of this experience and yeah. everybody just looks kind of miserable. Whereas in this scene, it's the inverse. It's like a really hot day and the sun is like, you can just tell it's just miserably hot and unrelenting Mm -hmm. and that sort of sun bleached color that the world has on like the most hot day of the year Mm -hmm. that's the evocation so it's interesting because it's the exact inverse but it's not a relief it's not better no just different (laughs) yeah it's like the tale of this book and this film right you may have a preference but both are exceptional it's just that they're quite different they're very different you know they're they're very different, but they're doing what they need to do for the form. I actually think this would be an excellent pairing to teach if you were mm-hmm. teaching adaptation, because it's a really thoughtful, careful adaptation that's thinking about what translates best to film mm-hmm. without losing the sort of overarching argument of the book, right? Like, war is bad, <laughs> uh, <laughs> mandatory service is terrible, and yeah. toxic masculinity will kill us all, right? Like, Come on. All of that is still here, but it's telling the story in a much better way for for cinema. And I think that that's a really interesting thing to think about adaptation, not from the perspective of like critiquing whether it's faithful or not, Mm -hmm. but about how it's working with the medium that it's choosing. Yeah. So one last thing before we maybe move into some YA bingo, I do think it's important to discuss the depiction of blackness considering Mm -hmm. the topic. We should note that Hermanus, the director, identifies – it's interesting. His word is he identifies as colored. Mm-hmm. That's a separate class. That's because in – so in South Africa, under apartheid, you could be white or black or colored. Um, mm, okay. And colored constitutes mixed-race people, but also the indigenous populations of South Africa who okay. were quite completely erased by that classification. Mm-hmm. Um, and being – white or black or colored was like a category of person and it's shaped the kind of rights that you had under apartheid. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense because he, again, when I was doing research and some, some of these interviews, at one point he mentions that he and his family were not allowed to live in town and they mm-hmm. had to live on the outskirts in a house that his father built because they didn't have those same rights. Yeah. So it's like white people in Cape Town and then like colored people at the outskirts and then the townships are where the black people were allowed to live. So it was all like deeply stratified. Of course. Yeah. And if listeners haven't read uh, Trevor Noah's memoir, it's a really great reflection on what it was to grow up colored under apartheid. Mm-hmm. Okay, so thinking back to that original question, Mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts on the depiction? I felt like it was interesting because neither book nor film truly wants to go there. So Mm -hmm. it's present, but it's not at all a central focus. It's almost like this is a peripheral piece that's informing both stories, but then there's really scattered pieces of imagery in both. I think it's really important to remember that from the perspective of these boys, whiteness is what exists, right? Mm -hmm. And so while, as I said off the top, like I felt super uncomfortable reading an apartheid story from the perspective of the white characters, marginalized Mm -hmm. though they are, I think it would be inappropriate 
you know, in the film adaptation to like introduce a black character and right. and suggest that any of these people in this context would have any understanding. There's mm-hmm. one scene in both book and film where the the train full of soldiers sees a black man waiting for the train. He's mm-hmm. on the black platform. He's doing everything he's supposed to do under apartheid law. Yep. And they're horrible to him. They jeer mm-hmm. him. They scream at him. They throw bottles at him. And when none of that works, the man stands impassively. Or I think he's sitting. He's sitting on a bench. Mm-hmm. They end up throwing a bag of vomit at him yep. and hitting him with it as the train pulls away. And it's such an upsetting scene. Yep. We watch it totally powerless to do anything to help this man. Mm-hmm. But we also watch as... A platform of in the film version we watch the platform of white people standing on the white platform watch watch and they also don't do anything to help this man and the nope. the sense of the way he is totally trapped and circumscribed by where mm-hmm. he finds himself i found so difficult to watch and the other thing to recognize is that the only other black characters we see in the film are mostly dead like they're mostly getting shot they're dead or prisoners with the insinuation that they will be killed shortly yeah and i think that in many ways that's the only way to tell this story because Mm -hmm. of the perspective the choice of perspective means that anything else would be disingenuous yeah but that doesn't mean it's not horrifically uncomfortable yeah no i completely agree i think one of the things that really It worked better for me in the film because it is stark, right? There's really only two instances of blackness in the film. And it was so glaring that it made me realize how much of this conflict is, quote unquote, about race and, and, you know, white protectionism. And yet this is really a society that is just self-propagating. Like Mm -hmm. most of these people do not know black people. They have never interacted with them. And they're fighting this fictitious battle against them. Mm -hmm. And it's all bull. Like, it's just total BS. And I feel like the film does a really good job of highlighting when those characters show up, those moments are incredibly powerful in their starkness because they stand out from the whiteness of the rest of the film. And then the book, you get the impression that Nick actually has a much better relationship with black people because he was raised by a black nanny you know, he's had a couple of interactions, particularly as a child. So he knows that this is just another instance where he's kind of being lied to and being, again, indoctrinated into this white culture that he himself does not believe in. So I think something that's worth noting, Joe, is like, yes, we have that experience, like from Nick's perspective, and it makes him a more empathetic person, because really, the only loving protective relationship in his life was Mm. with his black nanny and then we see that replicated right so malcolm has not had a similar relationship but has seen that relationship ethan has a very similar relationship he's more interested in finding out what nick thought of precious than what nick Mm -hmm. thought of his mother right but what's important about that is that the relationships are ones of servitude right so like yeah Yes, they have this humane, loving relationship with these black women, but they are black women who are in service to the family and can never really like be, they're not equals, right? Mm -hmm. Like they could be fired at any moment. And they are like, look what happens. That's what happens to Sophie. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's interesting the way 
we see that story perpetuated throughout, which is that there's all these boys who are actually capable of empathy, the handful of them who we meet. Almost all of them have that backstory, but Mm -hmm. they don't even seem to recognize the sort of classing and the race-based distinction there, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so understated, right? Like, it's not something that really gets addressed. You have to pick up on it as a reader, and then it's wholly absent in the film. Yeah, totally absent in the film. The other thing that's absent in the film, which also has, I think, maybe racial and political connotations, is one comparison that Nick makes frequently in the book. He compares what they're doing at the borders with the Vietnam War. Oh, mm -hmm. which implies that he sees that A, it's a proxy war, (laughs) B, Mm -hmm. that it's futile. Like a lot of the boys really swallow the mythology that they are like protecting the fatherland, right? Which is, of course, right classic sort of apartheid language um and interesting it's fatherland and not motherland right because it ties back Mm. onto all that misogyny stuff we were talking about before yep but it also implies that he sees it as i mean by 1981 the world had a pretty good sense that vietnam was a giant like waste of life (laughs) yeah and so the fact that he can also see that where like his commanders can't Mm -hmm. i think is also important but i mean that that war was also pretty racist so <laughs> right yes yes it was yeah I, I don't know there's a lot going on about race in the book but none of it is direct and mm-hmm. i will confess that i found myself feeling very uncomfortable when malcolm and nick talk about how as gay men they are more oppressed than the blacks within apartheid south africa yeah like i found that super uncomfortable and yet they are horribly oppressed. And Word 22 is mm-hmm. one of the most terrifying scenes I've ever read is when he's in Word 22 with Ethan. Right. And yet that comparison is really upsetting. I wonder, is it is it fair or maybe just being too generous to suggest that this is the reaction of teenagers mm-hmm. or new adults where... Mm-hmm they think, okay, well, this is directly affecting me, and therefore I am the most oppressed. I think that's true, what's happening. I think in some ways the book suffers from the fact that the perspective is not always clear, and this is something that the Mm. film does do much better by virtue of being so streamlined. It's like, you know, sometimes it's very clearly Nick looking back on this time in his life, and sometimes it seems to be sort of in the moment. And I don't think I would forgive those observations of adult Nick in the same Mm -hmm. way that I would of 19-year-old Nick, right? And it's not always clear which perspective we're reading. Yeah. Yeah, I did want to highlight there is one moment where this kind of comes up in the film. It's not by virtue of Nick. It's actually the Dylan character. Mm. They're watching a video and Dylan totally does not buy it. Like, it's very much a kind of propaganda video mm-hmm. that they're being forced to watch. And because of that, they end up having to do these really extensive drills that end up in part turning a lot of the other crew members against Dylan. Yes. But yeah, I would say that's probably the only significant moment. And again, it's very underplayed. And it's very significant that it's Dylan who's about to get killed off, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts on Moffy? No, I do think people should check it out. I think it's worth your time. Um, but just mm-hmm. go into it mentally prepared for everything we've just talked about for the last hour. 
<laughs> absolutely heed those content warnings this is not an easy combination i think the book is a little bit <clears throat> i was gonna say i think the book is harder but then i realized the film is really grueling in mm -hmm. its own way because you don't get that reprieve of the various timelines yeah i don't know which one is i don't know which one is easier to take but i will tell you joe that i that as soon as i finished the film I immediately Opened up the new Becky Albertalli because I there needed, we go. <laughs> needed, needed a little pot cleanse. I need warm, comfy, yeah. fluffy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give it to me. Put it in my veins. I mean, it's the benefit of these podcasts and all of the different texts that we cover, right? It's like, yeah. well, I mean, <laughs> heck, where we're headed next week could not be further away from <laughs> what we are talking about this week. It's true. It's true. But let's do bingo first and then we'll get there. Yes. Okay. Okay. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Um, there's abuse, for <laughs> sure. Just a little. Just a little bit. There's also dead bodies, mm -hmm. for sure. I think it is a borrowed time narrative. One of the things that Nick keeps reminding us is that it's two years. If he can just survive this two years, it's just yes. two years. Yeah. I mean, it negates the idea that he won't be <laughs> scarred for the rest of his yeah. freaking life, but sure. You do yeah, you, Nick. <laughs> I mean, trauma is as trauma does. Mm-hmm. We've definitely obviously got a queer secondary character. Yep. Um, I think there's good friendship, particularly in the book, between yes. Malcolm and Nick. I actually really love their friendship. It's one of my favorites that we've read. I think it's so um, honest. They can be honest with each other mm -hmm. as two gay men who aren't interested in each other in this world where there's no one else who understands them. It's, it's yes. quite a significant and meaningful relationship. And it's by virtue of the lack of romance that their friendship is so good. Mm -hmm. I love that it acknowledges a real world situation. You know, I, I always hate it when we talk about romantic comedies and it's, you know, oh, well, if you're a man and a woman, obviously you're going to fall in love. Or, yeah. oh, if it's two queer teens in a high school, you've only got each other, so you have to fall in love. And the reality is, no, it's not like that at all in real it's life. Is that how feelings work? <laughs> Uh, um, can we say a road trip to the border? <laughs> We've never specified. It's not like the road trip has to be a happy thing. No, I <laughs> actually, you know what? There, there are Nick gets a lot of pleasure trips. in the trips to the camp. Like it's a bit of borrowed time because he knows what he's going back to. But when they're coming back from passes, yes. he seems to really enjoy those car trips. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And I also do think that it's a road trip to the border in a lot of ways. But I just now I'm imagining like they stop for snacks. <laughs> <laughs> Let's stop at the on route, have a pee, grab a snack and then head back to the border. Instead, they're vomiting in bags, throwing yeah. it at people. <laughs> um, um, is that everything? I don't have anything else. No. I wouldn't argue for musicality because it's no. extremely underplayed, but some of the song selections are quite lovely. Don't circle it or anything, but I just, I really like the soundtrack. Yeah, I, I will say this was a, a screener that I had that did not have subtitles except for when they speak Afrikaan. And mm. the a number of times where I had to crank the volume when it was talking as opposed to the score, particularly that score at the beginning when they're on the train. Oh, yeah. It's so all-encompassing and just really doom-inducing. Uh, Brian ended up watching it with me and he's just like, okay, I need you to turn this down because my anxiety is going through the roof right now. Oh, it's now. true. I couldn't tell if that was like intentional or not, but it, yes. It just seems so loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, well, all this to say, nowhere near a line. No, I, I'll be honest with you, Joe. If this book and movie had given us a bingo, I would have been surprised. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so as Joe teased, we are changing gears for next week's episode, and we're heading back to the world of To All the Boys I've Loved Before with the new spin-off series XO Kitty. We've got mixed feelings. It's worth tuning in to hear all about them. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get in touch with us about this text or anything else you've heard on the show, you can find us on Twitter at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, where do they find you? I am at B still on my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray, and that is Gray with an A. And for anything long form, you can always email us, hkhspod at gmail.com. And if you're reading along with us for book club, you've missed your opportunity to write in about Ready When You Are, but we are looking ahead to Stolen, which we teased on the Sammy Blood episode and in the mailbag for that week. So hopefully you're reading that and you want to write in about that, hkhspod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe, I'm glad we did this. Mm-hmm. Um, let's never watch it again. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? Fair. Fair, fair, fair. But um, I did want to give a shout out to listener Alex from 7th Row who did recommend this text to us. So thank you, Alex, for bringing this back to my attention. And uh, also, we will never forgive you. Yeah, you had seen the movie, but you didn't know it was a book, right, Joe? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I am genuinely glad I read the book and genuinely glad I saw the movie. I don't mm-hmm. want to be too flip about that. I really am. No, this is really good. It's just it. This was a hard week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, let's go get some fluff. <laughs> Which is a hard week for me in a different sense. <laughs> Until then, I'll see you on the page. And I'll see you on the screen.